Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. If it's controversial to say that, yeah, electricity will become more like the internet in terms of, you know, we're not really measuring bandwidth that much. It's just there, it's available, you subscribe, and it gets better and, you know, cheaper and stuff. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Today is episode 116. Can you believe it? I'm so grateful you are here and I don't think you'll regret it as today's conversation is with an entrepreneur who inspires me in many ways. Nadine Chowdhury is a world traveler, a voracious reader, and a market maven the likes of few I've met. His founder's story is an intriguing one, but so is his backstory, and it's all here. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice in the other 115 episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, check out our Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn more. And now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here today on Suncast. Suncast we have the pleasure of spending time with a man who's not only an entrepreneur, but an influencer in the Latin America market, in the solar market writ large, globally, having formed a company many of you will be familiar with, and if you're not, you should check them out. It's a company called Green Power Global. He also has Green Power Academy. Nadim Chaudhry is the founder and CEO of Green Power. And Green Power, in a nutshell, is one of the leading platforms for networking and education on how the renewables industry is spreading globally. And he's focused a lot of his time and attention on Latin America, which is how I met him through Mirek and how many of you likely know him. Nadim, welcome to Suncast. Hi, Nico. Thanks a lot for inviting me on. Very pleased to be here and have a chat with you. You know, it's been a, a real interesting journey to watch how Green Power has evolved and matured and to get to see you in action and your team in action as you've expanded and contracted and, and modified your focus over time. But you weren't always focused on events. In fact, you weren't always focused on renewables. Could you give me a little bit of insight into your first exposure to the topic of renewables and how you decided that that's where you wanted to focus your career? I guess it goes back to, I have actually always been in events. So my first eight years were spent in, in the mobile telecoms world, which I sort of fell into events accidentally, but I'd, I'd, I was interested in new technologies. I'd, I'd done a university course in industrial production and business and and it was to produce European graduates who understood the car industry. And so I'd worked in the car industry as interns in both Fiat in Italy and, and Rover in, in, in the UK. And that, and that led me to believe that I definitely did not want to work in the car industry or the automotive industry because it was very mature, slow moving. So I had some nice piece of advice similar to the graduate where someone said, well, you should work in new technologies like IT and telecoms. And so... That sort of steered me in that course, and I ended up in a small company in, in the UK, which is now a huge company, and we ended up producing what is now in the Mobile World Congress in, in Barcelona. So 
when I was working on it, it was a you know, 500 person event. And I'd saw quickly within sort of five, six years, how it evolved. So how technology can dramatically change markets and have an impact. And off the back of that, I was also involved in sort of internet. And strangely enough, had some of the guys who founded GTM had also founded a business called Light Reading previously, which focused on wavelength division multiplexing. For those that, that know, it's the, the sort of technology behind um, the internet and, and, and optronics. That led me to be running a, a conference team in Brazil in 2003, and I was asked to go back to the UK to, to, to go back to the sort of telecoms team. And I didn't want to do that. And I'd met a guy on an airplane who was reading a yachting magazine, and I got chatting to him, and he basically had knew nothing about yachts, but had got into the habit of reading widely at airports and picking up random bits of literature. So I, I started following his advice and I picked up a book called The, the Carbon War by Jeremy Leggett. Um, and it describes the background to the negotiations of the Kyoto Protocol. And I vividly remember one of the paragraphs with a guy called Brian Flannery, who was the corporate external relations director for ExxonMobil. And when the American negotiation team came out of negotiations, the body language that the observer Jeremy Leggett saw was, you know, Brian Flannery wagging his finger at the U.S. government negotiation team. And that really sort of set the scene for where the, the levers of power were and, and equally got me quite angry and, and worked up about, A, climate change, B, fossil fuel. And, and I, I, I was always into history and I'd studied, um, you know, social and economic history as a schoolboy and studied the Industrial Revolution in the U.K. and studied sort of the activities of what called Luddites who were destroying technology and trying to suppress technology change. So that kind of brought up the feeling that, yeah, there's technology out there that can solve the climate crisis and you know, maybe there's something to look at in renewable energy. And then at the end of the book that I was reading, The, the Carbon War, Jeremy Leggett says, right, I'm off to start a solar company. And he started Solar Century, which has been you know, fairly successful in the work that it's been doing. And so I basically took the skill set that I had, which was obviously organizing conferences and trying to grow conferences specifically, because we've been very successful in growing the Mobile World Congress, and apply that to renewables. And I saw it as a sort of must-happen market because climate change was real, you know, renewables could provide a solution. At that time, it was still very much we needed to really cost the externalities of pollution. So, you know, the carbon pollution, so carbon markets, et cetera, needed to play a part because even at, at that time, no one was talking about the technology being able to evolve to such a, such a rate that it has and to actually out-compete fossil fuels purely on the economic basis, which clearly we're doing now and we will do ever more so going forward, even if we add in the, obviously the costs of, of storage and, and, and balancing power demand with power supply and doing that operationally in virtually every single country in the world throughout the entire sort of year cycle. So yeah, so that's, that's what sparked the moment. I didn't know a lot about energy and I spent a year and a half before the first event preparing and understanding and reading and going to events. I went to the government event, Renewables in, in Bonn 2004. I can remember meeting Mike Eckhart of ACOR there and trying to get him to work with me on doing a renewable energy finance event in Wall Street because I had identified there was a gap. And he said, oh, you're completely right. There is a gap. But we've just come back from London and signed up Euro money to do exactly that event because we see that there's a need for that in the US. So 
so yeah, so it was, you know, obviously a long time ago. And then we've done a lot of different things um, over the years. We were very successful and got into sort of biofuels. And, and I got into believing, you know, the biofuels would be the, the panacea. And we built the largest sort of biofuels event in Europe for a number of years. And we've run conferences in, I think, 38 different countries now. And of late, decided to sort of switch and focus a lot more in, into Latin America, where we saw good opportunities to, to really, I guess, scale events and grow them, particularly with a team based out of London, which can be tricky working across oceans. It's clear to me now that since you had been in the events business, it was natural outcropping for you that Greed Power become an events-focused business for renewables. It does seem prescient. You mentioned in one of your bios that you were about 10 years ahead of your time, and that can be often painful. It can often spell death for a business. How did you choose Latin America to begin with? How did you decide to focus on Mexico for what now is Mirec? Can you walk me through that process? I had been running telecoms events in Brazil, and I'd lived in Brazil for three years. So I spoke you know, fluent Portuguese and traveled the region. And so I had a passion for Latin America. And, and you know, originally, I started it with a laptop and on a kitchen table. And you know, the first sort of business plan was really based around where I wanted to go on holiday. So I, need, I needed to find a reason, A, to go back to Brazil. So some of our initial events in, in 2005 were, one was on biofuels in Brazil and also carbon markets. So again, I think I mentioned the Kyoto Protocol process and the clean development mechanism at that time, there were a number of, of ways of financing carbon mitigation projects. And so we ended up doing, I think, 10 events around the world in, in any one year on carbon markets. And, and one of those was, was in Brazil. We did, she did a small sort of biofuels and carbon markets event in Mexico, which I think was around about 2010. It wasn't huge and there was huge politics at the time with corn and the, and the U.S. demand and, and impacting and the price of tortilla in Mexico. So there wasn't huge government support for, for biofuels in, in, in Mexico specifically, but we, you know, we certainly got to know the country and were, were tracking it. And we saw the beginning or embers of the wind industry. So we launched the first wind event, wind power event in Mexico. And we worked with the Mexican Wind Energy Association for a number of years. I think we did two or three editions together. And that was the origins of Mirex. We added solar to it later. And then we had come up with the sort of Mirex formula actually in Turkey, where we had again been doing a wind event and, and a solar event. And we, they had good geo power resources, obviously, in Turkey. I said, well, why don't we just add them all together as opposed to doing sort of three little events? And and very much the history of sort of Mobile World Congress was, you know, we really want to build big events that are big annual diary dates. The role of conferences, you know, you can do thousands of little, little conferences, but the most valuable conferences are those where the whole industry meets and you get real inertia and you can, you can shift the dial. And, and it gives you the scale to really be able to make sure that it's a high quality event. You can get, you know, good quality speakers. You can really effectively lobby the government. You can pull in and act as a catalyst of change. So you need scale and, and, and you need money to do that. So you need to attract a, a large enough audience. So, so in Turkey, we had Tirek, which for a number of years was great, but then government support fell off of solar and wind and it ended up basically just being a geo event. So in the last sort of editions, we, we dropped it. It just became a sort of geothermal event. But that idea, that Tirek idea was 
transferred to Mirek when we saw the, the opportunity in, in solar and really looking around understanding what are the key challenges to, to, to help a market grow and, and clearly the number one is finance and attracting banks, et cetera, and getting those money guys there would help us get project developers there, both on, on wind and solar. And a lot of the a lot of the financiers, you know, play in both markets. So it was very much built around that concept, a bit like the, you know, the game of dominoes. It's yeah, get good money guys there, build out huge amounts of data around all the potential investors, be it on the debt side, the equity side, the mezzanine side, development banks, etc. Then you get the developers and then the supply chain will come and you've got an effective event, you've created, helped create the market, you've got buyers and sellers. So for me, sort of the purpose of an event isn't an academic, uh, an event isn't a sort of talk, you know, just isn't all talk and hot air. It needs to do things. It needs to connect people who are going to build projects together. It's going to help de-risk investment decisions, and it has to actually provide value. And that value is, you know, the value mix for us is, is great content. So uh, we really delve into the, the subject material at, at some depth to make sure that the, the content is helping inform people and de-risking those decisions. And as any market develops and becomes more mature, the granularity and detail in those decisions and, and the sources of competitive advantage become ever more deeper. You need strong research and a strong understanding of the market and who the right players are and who's who's talking bullshit and who's who, who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, so it's that that combination of great content with you know a great environment. So you know good quality venues, good networking arena, good exhibition, and then sort of good interactivity and the ability for people to ask questions and be it, be it in, in the format of sort of panel discussions. Or, you know, very good quality app that works and allows people to set up one-to-one meetings. And then lots of nice, good quality networking events and drinks and dinners and awards, etc. And site visits and, and all the rest, which which helps bring people together. And particularly the, the sort of random encounters or the unplanned, which can often provide the most sort of beneficial to the attendees. I totally have had that experience. I feel like the ability for an event to create what seem like casual encounters, but they're really on some level planned events. You can't guess who's going to meet whom, but to have them as opportunities where organically folks can bump into one another. I mean, I'll give you a great example for me. You know, one of the most amazing surprises for me and outcomes of Mirek this year, having gone many, many years, I asked a friend to save a seat for me at the Mirek Awards. And the Mirac Awards is one of these things that you guys have created over the last few years that has become a black tie, uh, kind of almost not to miss event during Mirac. And I sat down quite randomly beside a friend who saved me a seat. And the person to my right was the now head of social media for Grupo Bimbo. And to his right was the head of PR. And to his right was Irene Espinola Campos, who's the global renewable energy procurement manager for Grupo Bimbo. Like to have had that serendipitous encounter, not only for myself as Suncast, because she agreed to come on as a guest, but also for my clients who would very much love to know how a buyer like her is thinking about the process. Like that's something that I couldn't create for myself. I mean, it's been interesting because obviously I've been working in events since, well, since all of my career since, since 1995. And, and I remember very much when the advent of the internet and, and around about and working for a big 
UK-based multinational, you know, around the turn of sort of 99 and 2000, having various big strategy meetings with, you know, 500 people from the company and, you know, the internet, a threat to events and, and how the increasing dissemination of information was going to impact live events, whereas, whereas the actual reverse has happened and we've seen that even though there is an increasingly digital and sort of screen-dominated world, we can get, you know, instant information and, and previously conferences used to provide quite good source of, of focused information there's nothing to replace that live experience and, and obviously you're seeing it in, in every event segment be it sort of music festivals to to my field in terms of commercial b2b events but but that live experiences are growing and they're, they're becoming unique and there's something unique about humans and and people needing to meet face-to-face to really understand, A, you know, each other's issues and problems, uh, you know, B, to create that trust. There is value in that sheer, you know, meeting of physical people. You know, I've begun to lean into creating these sort of micro events, these opportunities on a very, very small level for 50 to 100 to 150 people to meet. Nothing on the scale of a Mirac, nothing on the scale of a, an SPI, but from your perspective, having done events your entire career, I'd love to hear what you feel. A, how long does it typically take to put together a really well-run industry event? And then B, what have you seen becoming the core components required for people to be willing to show up? Yeah, I mean, in terms of length of time, we personally like to work, you know, sort of 56 weeks out. So, so four weeks before the edition, we're working on the next edition in terms of sort of understanding maybe the structure and where we're going to go and if we're going to add streams or, you know, how typically it's around how we're going to grow, grow something or make it better. A lot of work goes on on site for, to understand how to replicate and how to improve the event each, each year. In terms of the actual what's important and what do people value, I think it's sort of back to those sort of three areas of, of content, interactivity and, and networking. People do value a lot of the networking for me, it's putting together that mix and the content has to, has to be broad enough and deep enough to engage people. We were surprised again this year, say with Mirek, that a lot of the sessions were full. We were thinking that, okay, maybe everyone knows each other and everyone knows the market. Now it's getting to be a little bit more mature. But no, there's still a lot of, a lot of technology change. There's a lot of obviously regulatory change. There was just a very good attendance in the session. So it shows to, to me that, yeah, content is still important and i think that will continue you know i think obviously in technology we see this sort of technology arm race and you know this year it's bifacials last year was perk next year we'll 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 have something else you know obviously amlo and and changing mexican government and who's going to be the new energy minister and and what could be some of the scenarios and how do people do their scenario planning and you know changes in finance and they were very i can remember just you know from from discussions that that were had in terms of the maturing of that finance piece both financing for dg but also sort of utility scale how can we notch up what I still think is a small industry, particularly obviously if you look at in Mexico and think about solar, you think that why can't it grow to 80%? I mean, we did some work in terms of the Miric mission and what, or what is the purpose of Miric? And we did sort of come up with various forecasts and obviously we look at the, you know, the serious analysts and the Bloombergs, et cetera, of the world, the GTM, and see what they're predicting. So we came up with, say, 75%, but then we spoke to the, some of the sort of advisors and, and people advise us and they said oh it's too extreme you should so we came we settled on 51 percent. so that renewables in mexico will be 51 percent by say 2030 but i think you know even even now people are talking 
about that, yeah, it, you know, it can go to 80% by 2050 and that you'll be able to successfully run Mexico on, on that and, and obviously cater for growth and, and, and a near doubling of the grid from sort of the 60, 65 um, gig they got to, to 120, 110. So there's a huge amount of gigawatts. You know, if, you, if, if, if you're talking about 80% of 120 gigawatt Mexican grid in 2050 and then you, you've got nigh on nearing 90 odd probably 85 gigawatts of, of renewables just to build out that's just an extraordinary number for, for mexico but that's going to be happening in in countries all around the world the uk they're talking about 80 percent in other countries you know 60 70 percent and that that reality takes some investment takes some planning and it's a great market to play in we're very keen to help with that sort of energy master planning and, and develop some real sort of long-term events that help us evolve to what has to be a, a low-cost power grid. Hey, I really hope that you're enjoying this conversation with Nadim. And, you know, don't touch that dial just so fast. I know some of you are tempted to fast forward. When you hear these interstitials and the music in the background, we've trained you to hear, oh, partner, uh, pitch, sponsor, I'm going to fast forward. But today, it's a little bit different. The sponsor is me. I am taking the chance in this first episode of the month to just say, hey, I really appreciate you. I know many of you have been listening for so long to Suncast, and you are already implicitly a part of my Suncast community and my tribe. But if you've also been listening lately, since episode 86, I created a special member group called the Suncast Tribe that uh, you can find at mysuncast.com forward slash member. Some of you have shared recently the reasons that you joined, not the least of which is you just think that the content is, uh, is, is worthy and you wanted to, it's, it's a one way, like a virtual tip jar for you to give back to all the work that's gone into making this entertaining for you and educational and helpful. And, uh, you know, maybe you're like another who joined last week who said, you know, I've been meaning to do this for a while. And I heard that you have this special content exclusive to Suncast Tribe members that you recorded at SPI. So I went ahead and pulled the trigger and joined. Well, thank you for whatever reason that you're joining. And if you're on the fence, I just want to let you know that I launched this back in June. Uh, Not sure how many people would join the Suncast Tribe. Uh, We've got a growing community. So the price will be going up soon. And I just wanted to give you a heads up because I know that several have been thinking about it and you're on the fence. If you wanted to join the Suncast Tribe, uh, you can do, th- do so through Patreon, which also we discuss on the member page, or through joining as an annual member where you get a discount. Take a chance now, check it out, and I hope that you'll join those who have already committed to being a part of the Suncast Tribe, and those benefits and value are only going to get better. Hope that you're enjoying this episode, and now back to Nadine. You know, this is one of the things that I think people misunderstand in particular about event coordinators. In my experience, uh, I'm good friends with Jay Applewhite uh, from BNI, also another a fellow event management junkie like yourself. The thing I've learned about you guys is that this is scratching a personal itch as much as anything. It's not that you've just identified a great market. You are one of the more well-informed folks I know on the potential future outcomes for renewables in Latin America, not just Mexico. And your team as well is incredibly well-informed. Many people are like, oh, you know, Nico, you have a great network in LATAM. I'm like, man, you haven't met the guys from Solar Plaza and from Green Power Conferences. And like these guys who make it their business to know what's happening down there, like GTM, PV Magazine, like those guys are way better networked 
than many of us in the sales side and the biz dev side. But it's refreshing to hear that from the leadership level of someone who's coordinating an event that has the presence and the impact that Amirak does, that you guys, you're not a remote office in London trying to spin a buck out of a current event. You know, it's something that you really believe at your core. And, and that's important. I think it's important for, our, for the audience to hear that. It also brings to mind, we could spend a long time just digging into that aspect of it, but it brings to mind a segment I call Hotter Hype. And as you just expounded on Mexico, I want to tee off Hotter Hype with one of the questions that I'll dig up from the archives. What I do with Hotter Hype is I name a specific market or a topic, and you can give me 30 to 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or hype and and why. And we'll start with Latin America as a whole or any specific markets that you think are hot or perhaps overhyped. What do you think? So, I mean, yeah, Latin America is certainly hot in terms of, you know, if you look at the average electricity consumption per capita and compare it to obviously the US and you look at the, you know, the development path some of the countries have taken up until now, they're, you know, they have a huge growth opportunity in electricity. A lot of that growth obviously is going to be occurring now. So it's going to be majority, you know, renewables, you know, the population demographics and the size of Latin America, you know, they, they allow for lots of renewables to grow in all, all those countries. And we were looking at Ecuador the other day and you know, beginning the planning for, for, for an event in that. And, you know, we were very bullish on Peru. We know Peru has got, you know, huge amounts of challenges. We were just there last month in terms of sort of government backing and, and understanding. But as an economy, uh, you know, strong mining economy, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow significantly in terms of its, its GDP. That growth underpinning it, they'll need to have a, a you know a low cost electricity grid, and so across the board, comparing it to say you know one of the reasons why we are very keen and bullish on Latin America is you know if you compare it to to say Europe, where we've got you know aging population, we've got pretty static electricity demand growth, we've got obviously replacement in terms of aging nukes and fossil fuel plants, etc. But yeah, in terms of sheer growth, Latin America is, is, is out there, you know, along with the obvious candidates, say Africa and certain countries in Asia or, or a lot of Asia. I'll ask a, another question around hot or hype in Latin America, particularly where transmission has been a constraint. Let's look at Colombia as Colombia is one of the largest producers in, in uh, Latin America. It's a huge uh, deregulated market. It's a big brother to Panama. There's a lot of conversation for the last decade about whether or not there'd be any connections. Where do you see the story unfolding for Colombia? Yeah, there. I mean, obviously the new government's just come in. They This week, I think two days ago, I think they appointed the new energy minister who has a background from Ecopetrol, which is the national oil company, but but Ecopetrol have also you know, come to a number of events for, for many years, and they know and understand renewables. Uh, and she is uh, the new Minister of Energy. She wasn't, I think she's a board member at Ecopetrol, but before that, she's held a number of senior posts in, in Citigroup. So she's commercial, and she understands how to attract investment grade. But hopefully, she'll be in the best position to create policy, which which is investment grade policy, which can attract foreign direct investment. They've already said, as they announced, that they're looking for diversification. You know, there are the issues of El Nino and Nino cycles on, on those big hydro-dominant grids, which, which are Colombia and Peru are, and also Ecuador are examples of. So, and clearly, yeah, they've got fantastic resources in Aguayera. Yeah, transmission, they need that. And they, they have got capital. I can't remember, I think it's called the Caribe 5 project. They've got some capital, government capital earmarked 
for that sort of transmission corridor and that and they need some more and as you point out it takes time to to build transmission and that was obviously the the classic learning from from chile and it does also remind me of some of the bottlenecks we've had in the history of the, of the solar module industry when when you know traditionally yeah, module companies would react quickly to feeding tariff sparks in in europe but it was the silicon processing plants take four or five years to build and you could put up a module plant in two years and so silica silica prices etc would skyrocket so i see the same sort of thing happening with, with transmission and it takes you know four or five years to build transmission and you chuck up a solar plant in, in incredibly ever decreasing times now so yeah transmission is an issue in colombia yet yeah, there is huge opportunity in terms of their solar resource in terms of dg Again, they've got a fairly good industrial base. There's a strong, strong opportunity. They've got some great irradiation sunspots and, and stuff in the country. I'm going to skip a few of my hotter hype. I want to ask you one, though, that particularly stands out to me, not least of you, because one of the major media outlets this year has doubled down on that one, but two events around the topic. And so I'm curious your thoughts on whether blockchain particular in blockchain as it relates to renewables and transactive energy and the, and the like. Is that hot or hype? I mean, I think there's a lot of hype at the moment, and I think there will be quite strong resistance to it in terms of the, the threat that it has to establish status quo, and namely utilities and, and obviously the strong influence that you have with utilities when you think about Latin America. So I, I, I'd see the need to have that proven very much in some of the more in, in the US fundamentally and see some of those business model issues. Um, you know, often the technology is is fine and we've seen that with many markets. You know, technology is great, but it's, it's getting the business model right and some of the softer stuff that takes time to get right. So clearly there's a long-term great potential to fit with using technologies like blockchain to reduce the overall cost of capital and, and and to allow that strong prosumer and you know the, the the famous example of being able to you know cost effectively use your neighbor's you know electricity when he's on holiday etc which which uh, I mean I remember tracking blockchain uh, about three years ago and I can't remember I think it was some of the EY guys or or, or some of the it was probably I think in one of the the, the GTM podcasts initially that first sort of broke that actual concept and the, and the linking with, with distributed generation and how there's that real nice ideal fit. But if you think, you know, wider than just uh, electricity and you think about disruption and, you know, the digital economy and you see everything that's happening and has, has happened to industries, then you would say that, yeah, you know, there is a strong reason that distributed resources and, and, and blockchain can severely provide that piece to disrupt utilities business model and, and you know, obviously well documented all stuff around utility death spiral but certainly you can see that when would be the question so i i would be thinking it would be you know more sort of two three years time time frame there's a lot of sort of startups and there's a lot of people who gets it right it's interesting. I think that there are conflicting views on this topic in particular, where it's going to hit first, because from an infrastructure level, you know, a lot of my friends in Latin America believe that blockchain is going to be the great liberator, if you will. I mean, for things like foreign exchange, blockchain can be revolutionary and in cryptocurrency can be revolutionary. The use of the two of those sort of combined for 
contract de-risking related to renewables. I mean, one of the biggest problems with contracts in renewables is dollar denominating a contract in a country where the local currency is not dollar-based. And uh, how do you hedge against, which often is what happens, how do you hedge against the potential Forex risk? That's certainly one aspect of how I've seen that blockchain and, and then cryptocurrency alternative coin options will help mitigate renewable deployment and de-risk financial involvement in Latin America before it does. And other economies, not just Latin America, but in, I'll call them developing nations versus what we currently refer to as developed economies. I'm glad to hear that it's something that you guys are focused on in some way. I think that what I've seen in my very small fishbowl is that anytime I mention just on Twitter or whatever, blockchain and, and cryptocurrency, regardless of the focus, it gets more impressions and views and attention than solar ever does. So if nothing else, it's a, it's a great way to spike views and, and gain attention, maybe for one of your breakfast briefings. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Along those lines, I often like to know, Nad, as a leader in the industry who has a perspective on many different things, what do you hold as a particular position or philosophy about our industry that is perhaps controversial? I mean, in terms of the the overriding dominance of sort of solar and, and wind, I mean, I, I don't see it as controversial, <laughs> but but some people, you know, laugh when I say that you know we can we can run a country off sort of seventy eighty percent renewables, and that that you know you can have gas peakers and you can have you know storage and you can go through the annual cycle and particularly you know pumped hydro as a role to play hydro etc. Country has its own unique characteristics, particularly within solar and storage, you know, we're at the beginning of technology change and the technology takes 10 years to develop. And in the UK, you know, they're looking at a deal for 90, 92 pounds per megawatt hour for a nuclear power plant, which is going to take another seven years to build. And they're guaranteeing that for the next 30 years. So the UK government knows what the price of electricity is going to be in 40 years' time. And we're very happy to pay the French and the Chinese 92 pounds per megawatt hour. You know, what is going to happen in material science and and everything else and, and, you know, tandem cells that take sort of cell efficiency up to 30% if you, you know, have a layer of perovskite that absorbs different parts of the spectrum. And all of that stuff is just, you know, that's 10 years away or, you know, 15 years away. And you're, you're planning financing for, for nuclear power plants just because they need to provide that base load. Well, it's like, well every roof, you know, I, I believe that every roof, there are 17 million homes in the UK and they will all have solar on them in about 20 years' time. And the fabric of buildings will just be absorbing light photons and creating electricity and it'll be just building material. You know, we, we've obviously seen, I would say, you know, I, I, if it's controversial to say that, yeah, electricity will become more like the internet in terms of, you know, we're not really measuring bandwidth that much. It's just there, it's available, you subscribe and it gets better and, you know, cheaper and stuff. So, you know, solar glass that's transparent. Why would anyone build glass that isn't solar generating? I mean, yeah, there, 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 there have been sort of technology cul-de-sacs in the past before, but but I certainly on, on roof tiles and, and stuff, I could certainly see that being, you know, an easy way to create electrons. And I don't see, you know, there's just, well, there's not a problem. There's no problem with balancing the grid if you just got so much electricity. So, Nad, you've had a remarkable ride so far. You've been involved in multiple different industries. And I imagine that you take influence from a number of folks who uh, have come before you. So I'd love to know what were some of the key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life or your career? Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of 
good advice and, and a lot of good advice that I didn't heed at the right time, predominantly often around finance and accountancy and having rigorous processes in, in, in terms of sort of starting a company and running a company. So we've, you know, we've nearly been bankrupt, I think, twice. The other big area, and, and I remember, yeah, it was over 10 years ago where someone was saying, you have to have very, very good FD, very good finance and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, okay. And then never really understanding or taking on board. Each time, you know, you get a new new guy in, he rubbishes the last guy and, and explains that he's, this is all the right way. So I think finally I've cracked it and understood the importance of the business. You know, I run a profit-making business and, we don't make a lot of profit, but we obviously need to be sustainable. We need to make a profit in order to invest in our events and, and grow. And so, yeah, there's been some hard rules there. And, and I think in terms of recruitment and the people around and judging people and, and having a much, much more rigorous and you know, classic entrepreneur is, is you grow unless I've got good quality people, people that are better than me in their, their own skill set. So, you know, our commercial team are excellent and, you know, hardworking and, You've got to have those really good quality people. We've had a lot of like bad quality people. We've taken people when we really had a question mark over them, and that's ended up costing us a lot. What does FD refer to? Oh, finance director, so CFO. So yeah, being able to make sure that you're actively managing your cash flow and, and stuff. So revenue is vanity and profit is sanity. It was very much something that I've learned a lot. And within the industry, you know, my chairman had, has, has run couple of sort of you know, billion pound businesses and stuff so he's he's over the last sort of five six years been a, a strong mentor in you know not doing too much and focusing on what you do well and doing that really well you know i'm quite easily distracted and i like new things and and i think focusing on events and and yeah we do the training as well but but yeah we want to be really really world class and doing one thing and doing it right and so that's that's something that's kind of resonated with me. I've, I've started various other sort of attempts at other bits of content and other things, which just, you know, you're not, you're not going to do it correctly. How did you come about finding and, and bringing on this chairman? When I was working for, he used to run Informer and EMAP. So I met him again at a sort of conference networking event. I just asked him really. And I, I told him about, you know, the industry and what we're doing. And, and that actually is, is the interesting thing. It's, you know, it's obviously a lot easier to attract people to, to work with you once you explain the significance of climate change, the significance of overcoming the misinformation from the fossil fuel, people that are trying to just protect their business models and their invested interests. And so, so I think, yeah, people are very pleased to tell people at dinner parties that yeah i'm involved with these renewable guys and etc and 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 certainly with the millennials and, and and sort of recruiting people we get a lot of people that want to work in renewables whether they're actually good enough or have the right skill set to do the jobs that's required in the business is, is another question but certainly classic millennials they all want to you know do something that's meaningful with their life it's obviously easier if you if you've got that along that line the industry is constantly growing and expanding. We've talked a bit about things like blockchain, et cetera, uh, solar plus storage. I'd be curious to know from your vantage point, having looked at this for more than a decade, what has you most excited right now for renewable growth globally? One area is the electrification of transport. So 
obviously I mentioned before how I was so bored with with my sort of internship in the automotive industry, and it has sort of come back full circle. So I'm quite interested in in seeing how that plays out. Obviously, there's a direct impact in terms of charging, and if you look further down the line, we're, we're looking at you know potentially vehicles that can actually self charge from regenerative braking and, and, and the fabric of the cars, et cetera. But, but certainly I think, you know, that that's going to be a hell of, a, of an interesting market. And clearly there is some really good overlaps with the renewable energy industry and opportunities for utilities, et cetera, and sort of growth in electricity. That gets me quite interested, as does divestment of fossil fuels. And having been sort of, you know, I've firmly had them in my sights for, you know, took 20 years and, and climate change. You know, I've got three children. We've just gone through one of the, well, we're still going through one of the hottest summers uh, you know, across the world. And, you know, I was up over the Arctic Circle in Norway and it was 30 degrees at, at some points across the border of Norway and Sweden. They'd had some of the worst fires they've ever had. We need to, to really accelerate the renewables industry as a matter of huge urgency. Because we, we, you know, everyone knows about you know runaway tipping points and permafrost and all the rest of it. It's happening. So yeah, that gets me pretty motivated. You mentioned earlier, as we round third base here, Nadim. Thank you for just for contributing such a, such amount of of time and effort. I always key in on towards the end of an interview is I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. You mentioned on that plane that you met a, a guy who said he had developed a habit of reading widely and that influenced basically your career change by getting you to the point where you just picked up a random book. I'd love to know, to start with, what's on your nightstand? What are you currently reading that's helping inform you? Well, there's a book about death, which is interesting. So it's, it's a guy called Richard Holloway, Waiting for the Last Baths. Um, so he's actually a, a, a clergyman. He's almost atheist in, in terms of the writing, but it, but it's certainly it's interesting. Uh-huh. In That's called of, Waiting for the Last Bus? Yeah, Waiting for the Last Bus. And the other book I had was Resilience, which is a great book actually by a guy called Eric Greitens, who was a Navy SEAL. And it's a sort of collection of letters to an ex-comrade. And it sort of runs through, obviously, the, the strong trials that ex-servicemen have in in yeah, getting used to civilian life. And yeah, it's called Resilience and it's very, very good. I mean, it's got a lot of self-learning and, and sort of motivation stuff. And the um, author of that is? Uh, Eric Greitens, so G-R-E-I-T-E-N-S. Well, along those lines, I find that leaders do tend to have, and certainly those who lead uh, organizations tend to have consistent habits or practices that influence their life. Uh, what, what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your work? Physically, I need to I need to exercise. I mean, I, I played rugby for twenty years, and obviously, you, you know, I'm forty seven now. So, I think I stopped playing when I was thirty five. It's obviously a brutal game, so it gets a bit irksome in your later years. So now I, I train. I just do sort of boring gym monkey stuff. So more of the sort of you know horrible press ups and burpees <laughs> and stuff. And I, I use a personal trainer when I'm in in London to do do the nasty stuff. Um, so there's that I need to, I need to, to do that sort of four or five, four or five times a week or, or do some sort of form of exercise. So I like, I like my bike and uh, I used to do quite a lot of running, but, but my ankles were both broken playing rugby. So it, it's, uh. it, it, it impacts your whole balance. And, uh, so, so the bike is better and, and, and yeah, yeah, I think cycling also, you end up thinking a lot more and it's, it's less, um, less, less heavy, but, uh, but yeah, 
so yeah, exercise is is a, is a key. Obviously, with three children, it's it's trying to impart some some fatherly advice and and what's the big game that I'm playing with my son at the moment? Fortnite, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, Fortnite is all the rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, I've, I'm I'm useless at that, but yeah, we we play FIFA football and card games as well. So. Take it old school, analog. I love it. Nadim, where, if someone were interested, would they find out more about you and how would they be able to better engage with you? So yeah, LinkedIn, obviously greenpowerglobal.com is the website. So you can sort of find my name if you look up Nadim, N-A-D-I-M-M for mother. You should be able to find my email address or connect with me on LinkedIn. Nat, is there any way that our audience might be able to add to the cause that you are driving forward? What ask might you have of the solar warriors listening to this? I mean, we're, we're always interested in people doing new projects. So particularly, you know, deploying capital, creating a new project is, is sort of the core to some of our events. So we're very keen to, to meet and know all the sort of project developers and understand what their problems are mm-hmm. um, and how we can help, you know, either connect them to finance, help demystify some of the regulations in some of the, some of the countries that we work um, but very much you know, our business is centered around trying to help those guys and, and, and not only on the utility scale side, but also increasingly in the corporate and industrial side. That's sort of the tougher ask. So, you know, you mentioned Grupo Bimbo before, but yeah, we spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time, you know, trying to develop that base of corporate industrial, you know, energy managers that, that are looking at, at doing projects. Well, if you're out there, I, having been one who has graced the stage of, uh, of Mirac in years past and other events, I can speak that if you are out there and you consider yourself an expert on a topic that others at a conference might also find interesting, you should definitely reach out to Nadim and his team, Green Power. They're always looking for local uh, developers, energy managers, decision makers, et cetera, and make it worth your while if you can help their event. <laughs> They'll help your world as well. I've certainly appreciated that and I've enjoyed getting to know you and your team. I think that they are, in fact, world class and, uh, and I'm grateful for the work that you guys are putting in the world. So let's end today with a bold prediction, Nadim. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I'm interested in the durability of some of the investment decisions going into oil so offshore oil and the impact of declining demand for oil, which has never happened before, which to my mind means offshore's off. And if there's a lot of cheaper ways to produce oil, and yeah, I can see there's going to be continuing oil demand, but once you start having declining oil demand, it's a whole different game. So I would be questioning whether I think there was probably $40 billion committed to extracting oil in the Gulf of Mexico in the recent sort of Mexican auctions. And, and obviously with the introduction of AMLO and some quite nationalist thoughts around those energy assets, will they ever get exploited? So maybe, maybe there's just too much risk. We'll see how quickly the ramp up of EVs is and we'll see if people are willing to, to, to invest money on, on expensive offshore oil when the Saudis can get it out of the ground pretty cheaply. That's maybe a controversial standpoint. But yeah, let's, let, let's see how this plays out with the rise of EVs and, and the impact on oil. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, Nadim, as folks do begin to decide whether or not they're going to put their chips down for these major investments required in offshore oil versus renewables, as we watch this all unfold, we'll certainly be talking about it here on Suncast, and we'll certainly bring you back and 
investigate what other corners you're looking around. For now, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Suncast, Nadim Chowdhury of Green Power Conferences. Great. Many thanks, Nico. Take it easy. I look forward to having a beer with you soon. That was a lot of fun, Solar Warrior. You know something else fun I discovered recently? Try saying, hey, Alexa, play Suncast podcast on your Alexa-enabled device. It works. It even works with Hey Google, too. I'm amazed, and it's just so much fun. My kids really get a kick out of it. And if you found yourself saying, wait, wait, slow down. I want to make a note of that. Don't fret, because I've already noted it for you. You can find the show notes and links to all the books and resources, and God has Nadim read a lot. Anyway, go to mysuncast.com and click on the listen link and you'll be able to go straight to this episode. If it's been a while since this episode aired, you can always scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and search for specific Suncast episodes or guests. Hey, speaking of guests, you will not want to miss this Thursday as it's yet another milestone in the life of Suncast and it's marked by the return of a very special friend and a special guest indeed. It's taken me three years of begging to get him back on the show. We'll be marking the anniversary of Suncast and taking a trip down memory lane, but the conversation stays very grounded in the present. If you are one of those faithful and you've been listening for a while now, or even if you're new to Suncast and you're all wondering how can we connect more or help you with the show, would you consider supporting the podcast financially by joining my Suncast tribe? Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to learn more. The value and price for joining is going up soon, so I encourage you to check it out. Plus, you'll get access to cool, exclusive content like that SPI session I was able to record last week live. To all my current tribe members, I wish you much love and great success, and I look forward to seeing you when I'm out on the road. If you'd like to join them, go to mysuncast.com forward slash member. I look forward to welcoming you formally into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle. 